most sellers would go with the strategy of pricing it where they think it's going to land, right? Us realtors hate that strategy because it'll backfire in so many ways. With the market the way it is right now, you kind of want the market to drive up the price. And that's where you're going to get more than the projected versus pricing it where you think it's going to go and then you've overpriced it, it becomes less desirable. And so it ends up selling around that listed price. Taking that overbidding out of consideration to a certain degree and price it based on where it should be based on normal conditions and let the market drive it up. You get a much better reaction that way. Welcome everyone to the Cassandra Properties Podcast. We're joined today by Kajal Shahani. She's coming to us from all the way out in the West Coast. She's a realtor in the Bay Area. She's more than just a realtor in the Bay Area. She is like the realtor in the Bay Area. Top 1% of sales in California. I thought it would be fun if we can talk a little bit about the relationships between the two markets as we span the entire country. So first of all, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So oftentimes we like to just give the audience a, a bit of a flavor of who you are and how you, you know, kind of came to where you are today before you became this dynamite, amazing agent. You know, can you talk a little bit about your background and maybe some of your influences when you first thought perhaps sales is where you wanted to go? Absolutely. Absolutely. So native Californian, um, my entire family's in real estate. So born and raised in the industry. Uh, but that being said, I never thought I would actually be in real estate because the entire family was in it. <laughs> I wanted to do something different. I thought the corporate world would be super cool. I went to UC Irvine and right after Irvine, I got a job that took me out to Chicago. Um, and while I was in Chicago, I actually worked for Wrigley, uh, Wrigley Gum in their marketing department um, for about six months. It was a, it was a very short, lived career for me in the corporate world. I was like nine to five, got super bored. I just was not a great employee there. So uh, simultaneously, I decided to get my real estate license thinking, hey, my, you know, backup career kind of thing. My parents did it. My uncles and aunts did it. My cousins did it. Let me just try. So I got my real estate license back in 2002, became a full-fledged realtor in the market of Chicago as a buyer's agent for about three years before um, heading back to California. I was in Chicago, ended up getting married there, was in it for three years. My first year as a buyer's agent, I closed 36 homes just representing buyers. Wow. It was the funnest year ever. <laughs> Downtown Chicago is a great place to start a real estate career. Very fun condos to sell, a great buyer, first time home buyer profile. And then three years into it, uh, my husband and I actually decided to move to my hometown, which was Fremont, California, uh, where my entire family was in real estate. So I moved over back to California in 2000 and between 2005, 2006. But the market in California is a different animal, just totally different beast. Um, I jumped in as a full-time realtor. California buyers, Silicon Valley buyers have very, very different types of mentality of what they're purchasing. They look at it as an investment property. Most of them start with the primary residence, but you know, very obviously in tune with appreciation and numbers and all that fun stuff. So very analytical is, is how I would describe it. And then since then, so that was 2006, I've been selling in the Bay Area since then. So 
is your husband also in the business? No, so my husband's actually a chiropractor. Okay. <laughs> so totally different. And at Intero where you work, is that family owned? It is. So my cousin is the broker of uh, my Intero franchise. I do have other family members that work there as well, including my mom. We all obviously work as individual agents. We team up periodically, but yeah, they all work there. So uh, for, for us here, Cassandra is his mom, right? Yeah. She's- <laughs> so yep. interested in what that's been like for you working with so much family over the years. Yeah, actually, great question. Um, it's been great. Um, none of us have crossed paths with a client or, you know, a geographical farm where clients have gotten in the way of any sort of relationship. We all work very well together. Uh, my cousin is my broker. We have a great relationship, very, very supportive. My mom, uh, she's at the point in her career, she's been doing this for 30 years now. She's at the point where um, she helps me a lot. And, you know, she's kind of winding down, but she does my open houses because, you know, I don't have bandwidth to do it sometimes. So the relationship actually works out really well. My aunt, aunt and uncle are there. A few of my other cousins are there and we actually work very, very well together. That's great. Yeah. So if our research is correct, you closed 46 homes in 2020? In 2020, yes. Uh, wow. Right. I mean, like that, that was a a very challenging time. Now, your focus remains in the buyer agency side, correct? So no. So actually, my first year in real estate back in Chicago was kicked off by becoming a buyer's agent just to learn the ropes. Year two, I started representing sellers. And now I would say in what is this my 18th year, I represent 50 50, 50% buyers, 50% sellers. And now I find myself sometimes even getting a buyer's agent to help out with a lot of my buyers. Because what happens right now, the way the market is, it's so fast paced. I mean, things are on the market for two days and then you have an offer date. So pure logistics, uh, timing, all that kind of stuff, the more help, the better. So right now it's a 50-50 and in 2021, so far I've closed 51 deals of which literally half of them have been sellers, half of them have been buyers. So I'm, I'm curious in your buyer relationships, are you papering this up and are you becoming their exclusive agent where you know you're coming to the dance together and you're going to leave together? Yeah, that is such a great question. So I actually don't make my buyers sign a buyer broker agreement with me because I do feel, and I know that's kind of going against a lot of, of what coaches teach us, right? But what I find is that if somebody along the way does not want to work with you, you don't want to continue the relationship. It's going to go south, right? Or the flip side where right now the market is so, so fast and so crazy and so intense that if the buyer is just not going in with the offers that are needed to get accepted and they're just kind of like dancing around the market, getting their feet wet, you also kind of want to put them on the back burner a little bit like, hey, we're there for you to educate you. We're there for you to hold your hand. But if you're not offer ready, we're there for you for education purposes. I don't want them to get stuck in a contract that's going to bind them to me for a year because who knows what happens during that year. So I actually don't make my buyer sign a buyer broker agreement. I do like working in a very open communicative type of relationship with my clients. So if they no longer want to work with me or if their plans have changed or vice versa, we should be able to say that to each other. So it's interesting, you know, uh, we're we're all programmed where our sellers, of course, we have all of our our contracts, right? Yeah. We have to have our contracts with our sellers. Yes. uh, But 
the buyers, there is a, a bit of a, a, a different relationship there. You know, there is. there's a fine line between being a professional, really servicing the client 100 percent and feeling if they're getting that level of intent of attention, there should be a commitment to you. Absolutely. And then next step in that, you know, evolution of an agent, and I happen to agree with you, is when you've really arrived and you feel I'm that good at what I do. And if you are comfortable with me, then we'll continue to dance together. We don't need a piece of paper that that represents that. And if we're not, sometimes things just don't align. Like you said, different goals. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's that's great. You know, you've become known on, on social, like your branding is so tight that you're known like as just your first name. (laughs) I was wondering if you could talk to the audience a little bit about how you've leveraged social media to promote your brand and and some of the things that you're doing. Absolutely. So um, consistency obviously is key. When we started real estate and probably the same with you, we didn't have social media. Um, So so it's definitely new to all of us. And I commend the newer agents, anybody that's popped into the business in the last five to six years, they've really, really pushed us kind of older agents to become a brand on social media. Because if you're not, you're you're not really playing with the market, right? You're not putting yourself out there, et cetera, if you're kind of lost in social media. So I would say consistency has been super key. I've hired a few key people um, for my business that help me stay consistent with posting on social media. The other thing that keeps it really fun and going is I actually never had like a business page, right? Like I didn't formally have a business page. I think my personal life and my and my business life kind of commingled into one page, which is more of what I do and more of my personality. And I think when I started using my business page for posting, I started posting less. So I was trying to keep it separate. It just didn't work for me, didn't work for my lifestyle. So I said, you know what, let's just let's just make it all one. Let's make it together. It's okay if people know my clients know what I do on my personal end. It's running my kids around or going on vacation or something. It's fine. So that kind of broke the mold of like, oh, where do I post? What do I do? And all that kind of fun stuff. And then the more, the more I post and the more I share, and sometimes I do share some stuff that isn't very, very positive, right? Like we'll go, I'll go on a listing appointment. I didn't get it. And I'll get an email or a text saying, Hey, we chose somebody else. That's totally fine. That's part of our job, right? And it's nice to share that with the audience too. It's nice to share that it's not just all song and dance on the real estate side. We do face rejection on a daily basis. We do write maybe 12, 15 offers for a client and never get accepted. They get burnt out and they say, we're going to keep renting. And you're like, oh man, I just worked with you for two years. So, um, so that happens. And so now I think, I think I'm at the point where you know, it'd be nice to share those kind of things about our world as well versus, hey, just pending, just sold, everything is great and everything is closing. And it's not out of, I would say this year, it's been the craziest year, um, 51 closings in half a year. I don't think I've ever done that in my entire career, but but also there's probably eight that didn't close, you know, so it could have been almost 60, but eight of them or nine of them didn't close. So it's nice to share that as well. But I think consistency on on branding, consistency on what you're doing makes it more engaging and more fun online. Yeah. So being genuine um, is invaluable, right? Yes. Because people want to connect and yeah. people uh, can't relate to uh, someone that is always just 
operating here. Yeah, we're not always, yeah, we're not always a game, right? Something, you know, we have those days. Yeah, without a doubt. So what what other technologies are you using? Uh, Technology so profoundly has changed the game. It has over the last 10, 15 years. What other technologies are you guys using in your shop to stay, you know, at at the top of the market? Absolutely. So our um, so the so Intero does provide a lot of technology tools. And honestly, I don't even use all of them they provide. And sometimes I sit back and think if I did like, wow, this be so powerful. But um, I do use a tool called Moxie. Which I don't it's I think it's US wide, but um, it's a CRM tool, but it's also a goal setting tool. So you once it's all populated in there, you have it all right there. You have your website, you have um, testimonials, you have your referral intake form. Very, very super cool tool. Um, at Intero, we do have um, another tool called Design Studio, where everything is already designed for you. You just have to auto-populate your stuff. So I do have a virtual assistant that helps me um, create marketing pieces through there, and that helps tremendously. I think between those two, and then actually there's one more called Real Scout. I don't know if that's US-wide either, but Real Scout's another very cool tool. Um, And that's purely how I use it. I test the market for when I am getting a listing. So there's a tool in there where you can populate an address and put in a potential list price for your, for your seller. It'll bounce back how many buyers are looking at that price. What would happen if you priced it lower, if you priced it higher. So that's a very cool tool to take with you when you're speaking to a seller. It kind of, Right. So it kind of takes away, it takes away from like the guessing game of, Hey, what if I priced it higher, which is what most sellers want to do. Right. Um, and then for buyers, the flip side is like, Hey, do you want to see what this listing is doing? Um, if it's, this is the price and you have 900 buyers looking at it and that's kind of what we're dealing with right now. Um, so that's a very cool tool that I use on a daily basis. Very neat. Yeah, it's it's funny that all of these technologies and virtual assistants have just become the common parlance of, you know, the description of what we do. This is just yeah. the game has changed so, so much. much. Yeah. Some of my newbies laugh at me when I talk about the book that we used to carry around and the index. Like the Thomas Kide. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you want to look up a block and lot, you thumb through the microfilm and you put it on this little dish that shined a light up and you took your tracing paper out, yeah. you know. Like the tools we have today are so awesome. I love being an agent now, I have to say. I do have to say, we have so many things that make our life easier. (laughs) Without a doubt. Um, I was hoping you could spend a few minutes and just educate the market on your market. You know, is it center city? Is it a bit of a suburb? What's the the demographic of it? And then maybe we could talk about the, the, uh, the market itself as far as activity and what you're seeing there. But could you just paint a, a picture for a few moments of, where are you operating now? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm physically out of the East Bay of the Bay Area location. So I'm about 30 to 40 miles, let's say, um, north of the Silicon Valley. And the East Bay is comprised of Pleasanton, Danville, Livermore, San Ramon, Dublin. They're all, it's, it's suburbs of basically San Francisco. Um, if I were to hop in a car and drive to the epicenter of Silicon Valley, I'm about 
30 to 40 miles from there. But remember, traffic is so bad in California. (laughs) So COVID has changed that dynamic. And so what's happened now is a lot of my clients are actually moving out of Silicon Valley and out of downtown San Francisco and moving to my area, my East Bay area, where you get single family homes, you get much bigger lots. Anything that has a swimming pool right now is on fire. Like it's just crazy. Whereas before pre-COVID, it was like, oh, pool, I probably won't even use it. And I'm going to spend the 15 grand to fill it up. So that dynamic has changed. But location wise, um, we have the East Bay, which which is what's been blowing up in the past 12 months. And the South Bay, which is considered Silicon Valley, is still holding up. It's still crazy, but it's the type of homes um, that are different. I would say single families in all these markets are highly desirable. Condos and townhouses um, have taken a little bit of a backseat um, because of lack of space. Uh, Condos and townhouses also have a lot of stairs, which now with a dynamic of most people still working from home and kids at home and potential in-laws and visitors and guests that are staying longer. Those tri-level townhomes and condos don't don't work very well for those scenarios. Um, so, and then San Francisco, right? I mean, the San Francisco market has definitely, definitely changed. The condo market in downtown San Francisco has changed. Most of the owners there have moved out to the East Bay. So what is an average price in your, so let's say a one family detached, What's an average price point? Average price point about 1.5. And a lot of first-time home buyers are jumping in at that price point. And I say that so hesitantly because something may be priced at 1.1, 1.2, but it'll get overbid to 1.5. So the average has become 1.5. And for that, you're getting anywhere from 14 to 1800 square foot single family with a decent lot. Obviously, the closer you get um, price point of let's say 2 million, you'll start getting slightly, you know, bigger homes, I'd say about 22 to 2600 square feet, 2700 square feet uh, with bigger lots. So the first time home buyer profile is jumping in really at the 1.5 mark. Not to say people are not jumping in at the million to million two mark, but in that price point, you're really looking at condos and townhouses. So you, you touched on something really interesting there. Uh, and I, I, I spar with my sellers all the time on this. Yeah. Curious your, your opinion. You had talked about uh, 1.5, but you hesitated because the list price was 1.1, 1.2. Yeah. So uh, are, you a, are you a believer in uh, hitting the mark from the previous comps, even though you know numbers are going to drive past it, yeah. or reaching and trying to get ahead of the predicted comp and trying to let the market catch up. What is your strategy when you're pricing a home? Yep. I think I, I I think you would agree with me on the answer. <laughs> so I'll I'll tell you that most sellers would go with the strategy of pricing it where they think it's gonna land, right? Um, us realtors hate that strategy because it'll backfire um in so many ways. You with the market the way it is right now, you kind of want the market to drive up the price. And that's where you're going to get more than the projected versus pricing it where you think it's going to go. And then buyers look at it, think I have no room to overbid 
you've overpriced it, it becomes less desirable. And so it ends up selling around that listed price. You definitely want to price homes, taking that overbidding out of consideration to a certain degree and price it based on where it should be based on normal conditions and let the market drive it up. You get a much better reaction that way. Yeah, it's fascinating to me quickly people forget the principles of supply and demand. Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like, I feel like I teach econ at every appointment. (laughs) So there's a migration, uh, from center city out. It sounds like by you as there is here. Yeah. What do you think is, is the, the reason for that? And what do you forecast for those center city markets in the few years that we have ahead of us? So you know what I've noticed, and and now we obviously have 12 months behind us of, of what changed so dramatically back in May, June of last year. Um, I actually personally had a condo listing in downtown San Francisco in a very desirable building. It was a two-bedroom, two-bath, beautiful property. Um, I literally saw it like flatline. I mean, I had zero showings, which is, which was super shocking. We ended up taking it off the market and just renting out because if, um, unless your seller is ready to undercut the market so dramatically, it just wasn't going to sell. That was reality. Um, And so what I see now though, now that we have the 12 month data behind us, people have trickled back into San Francisco here. They have, but at a very different pace and a very different mentality. So um, some of the listings, yes, will still get overbid based on the list price, based on the profile of the property, et cetera. Um, but I do see it taking a little bit of a turn um, for the upswing a little bit right now, where some people are buying second homes. Um, people that are living in the suburbs are saying, hey, it'd be nice to own a condo in downtown San Francisco when prices have come down. So let's go ahead and buy it and rent it until, until we want to use it. A, B, I've had clients who have moved out to the suburbs and will keep an in-town, not even rent it out, but just keep it as an in-town for someone who possibly is going back to commuting into San Francisco. So I do see that dynamic coming back. I also do see a lot of parents that are buying their adult children a condo in downtown San Francisco right now because either they're working there or... Um, become, because it's become a little bit more affordable and the overbidding in San Francisco has calmed down so much, you have a little wiggle room with even negotiating, you know? Um, so I see that coming back. And I do see that in, in the coming months, in the coming years, it's going to bounce back. Maybe not as strongly as it did this last time, um, but I do see prices coming back for sure uh, with the momentum of buyers that are wanting to go back in as second time, second homeowners or potentially just an in-town or even as a rental property. Uh, that's great insights. So um, could you profile your East Bay buyer a little bit further? I'm curious with the, the difficulties with transportation and, and yeah. traffic. Where is this buyer working? Oh, yeah, this is such a great question because um, the profile is exactly the same for all these buyers. <laughs> so young-ish couple, young couple, I'd say between the ages of 30 and 45, um, working in Silicon Valley, one or two, uh, one or two people of the household has completely stopped commuting and has had the option of working from home. And so that profile is so happy to move to these suburban homes 
that have these great schools for their kids and the great parks for family lifestyle, backyard, et cetera. Um, they usually have uh, an in-law or a parent that's either with them for, let's say, a couple months out of the year or somebody that actually just lives with them. Um, so they want that expansive house that has enough house for potentially six people. Um, and, and it's usually dual income, husband and wife both working. Uh, and I would say most of them are still okay to commute to the Silicon Valley, even in the potential traffic uh, coming back uh, for at least maybe twice a week. And they're okay with that because it's only twice a week and they get out of the house twice a week, but then they get to come home to this like beautiful, you know, backyard and, and a much bigger home that they owned prior to, to how this world has changed in the past 12 months. So that's pretty much the profile that's buying. So these clients, uh, clearly you have an outstanding relationship with them. I think last time we checked, you had like 50 five-star reviews on your Zillow profile. And, and I'm, I'm wondering you know, the testimonials and the reviews that we were, were checking out, you're obviously you're meeting and you're exceeding your client's expectations. You know, what's the formula that turns a customer into a repeat client? Oh, such a great question. Um, so staying in touch and being wholehearted about the transaction. And I, I really don't like using the word transaction because I'm not very transactional when it comes to my clients. Um, I hope they feel this, but um, the goal is that I'm part of their journey and their life changes. So once you buy with me or once you sell with me, I truly, truly will be open and honest about feedback of houses that they're going to buy. Um, if there's something I really don't think is good for them, I will share that. I will be open about that. I'm not very transactional in that sense. Like, oh, you like a house, let's just write an offer without my opinion. Um, so I think that that probably has a lot to do with it. I actually genuinely, genuinely care and will genuinely share um, feedback with their move. And sometimes I have clients that are a young couple, no kids, they're just getting married. Um, or they say, hey, I'm going to have a kid in the next year and they're going for like a tri-level house. And I'm like, okay, you have to remember this. In two years, you're going to call me and say, I hate the stairs in my house because I have this newborn or I have this toddler. So then I would suggest, even if you have to stretch your budget a little bit, let's explore some other options that don't have, you know, massive amounts of stairs. Whereas the flip side, if I have a young couple or even a single buyer, I think that type of house is perfect for them. And I will share that and I will vocalize that, hey, you should probably shave off some of your budget and go for the lesser priced home because your your lifestyle can sustain that right now. Um, and you'll probably live here for the next five to seven years. And when you're done, you're, you've been there for long enough where it's appreciated, you can sell and move on. Um, so I think genuine feedback has so much to do with it, being reachable. Um, a lot of times what I've, what I've found is talking on the phone for us realtors, right? It's we have to do that a lot with our current clients, right? Making offers, writing offers, giving sellers feedback. That's all phone call. But a lot of times my old clients honestly will stay in touch with me through text. And I'm so happy with that too, because we're still connected. A lot of times I can't pick up the phone and speak for 30 minutes or an hour because the day's gone. Um, but they needed some questions on landscaping or, hey, I want to remodel this. What do you think? You know, so I'm, I'm definitely there for them for all those scenarios. 
So the magic word in that description was, you, you said connected and being a connector. Yeah. So critical that, that we connect with our clients in a, a personal way. Yeah. Um, you know, are you also supplementing that follow-up with technology? Are you using the CRM to kind of keep in touch with the more generic outreach? Um, you know, what's crazy is I, I don't. Um, I should be. Um, and, and that's something that's one of my goals. Cause obviously we can lose sight of the people that we don't speak to on a weekly, monthly basis. Right. So, um, for sure. So that's one of my goals this year is to get a little bit more autopilot on that. Awesome. Yeah. So, um, back in 2011, you appeared on my first place on HGTV. Yes. <laughs> I was wondering if you could talk us through how did this come to be and what was that experience like? Oh yeah. So, um, I actually had just had my first kid. Um, and this opportunity came up, they were looking for a Fremont agent. And I was thinking to myself, does anyone know where Fremont, California even is? (laughs) Um, and granted at that time, 2011 is right when Silicon Valley, you know, like people that were working in Silicon Valley started moving out to Fremont. So that was kind of why Fremont was in the news. Um, and it's funny, it's not even that long ago, but 11 years ago, condos were 300,000. That same condo that was featured uh, in that episode is now like 700 and change, which is so wild. But um, so it was an opportunity for a Fremont agent to showcase a first time home buyer who worked in Silicon Valley, but was moving to Fremont. So very specific. Um, Mm -hmm. I happened to be working with a single guy at the time who was like, hey, let's do this. Like, I think this is super cool. Um, So we followed his journey on uh, finding this condo. It was 350,000, two bedroom, two bath. It's shocking to say that number now. But um, it was a very, very cool experience because I think they were at that time, uh, the profile was very, my first place was like in the Midwest and the East coast, et cetera. And now they were coming over to see what Silicon Valley had to, had to offer. Um, but very cool experience. <laughs> so did that, um, did that help propel your career? Did you get a lot of business from that moving forward? No, but I, um, a few times was referenced just randomly like, Hey, I just saw you on HGTV. That's so crazy. <laughs> um, so no, so I'm, I'm sure it's, probably half the things that that people said or you know that saw probably I probably didn't even hear it um but I did randomly get recognized like hey I saw my first place you look like that girl and I'm like well I was that girl (laughs) that's pretty cool so uh you you had said a lot of the buyers uh in East Bay are in they're buying in in the capacity of investment yeah um I'm wondering you know what percentage of your portfolio are 1031 exchange buyers Oh, such a great question. So honestly, that dynamic has changed in the past six months because prices have gotten so wild. So the flip has happened this year where my 1031 exchange clients are my sellers. So this year, I've probably engaged in maybe eight of my transactions have been 1031 sellers, not buyers. And uh, I'd say out of those eight, three of them were out of state. They owned California property and said, whoa, these prices. I said, absolutely, let's do this. And they sold, made a nice looking profit and actually moved their money um, for an investment property out of state. Because if we do, the reality is the Bay Area prices have gotten so crazy. Your cap rate for investment property is not the best at all. 
Like if you got 2%, you'd be super lucky. Um, So most of my 1031s this year have been sellers. And then the, the profile of buyers that bought those homes were first time home buyers or second time home buyers. Um, but what's been interesting is I've had a lot of California clients buy out of state. So speaking of investment property, um, Utah, Florida, Texas, um, Oregon, Colorado, these are like the hot, well, actually Phoenix recently, um, a lot of my California homeowners will say, where do I invest my money? And a lot of them have stock money that they're trying to pull out and put into real estate. They ideally want to they want to stay local, but when I when we share the numbers and go over the numbers, you're zero to maximum two percent cap rate, um, unless you get into like the massive multi units. I know. So they're getting. I have a few clients that are cap rating anywhere from like three, four to eight percent out of state. So why would you not do that? Yeah. So same thing yeah. for us. We're seeing yeah. Pennsylvania, North yeah. Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida. Same thing. People are pushing west and south. Yes. Um, where the cap rate opportunities are just significantly better, yeah. and there are a lot less legislative threats. Yes. You know, I think that the for our market at least, and maybe you could speak to this, the the legislative changes and threats to uh, multifamilies, yep. uh, commercials, the renter protections have really significantly, the pendulum is swung back. Yes. And investors are saying for this level of risk and this level of, of um, tenacity, elbow yep. grease that you have to put in to try and maintain, you know, out here, I mean, we're not zero to 2%, but, you know, the good stuff is five to six. Yeah. You know, right. Uh, it's rare that you get into those sevens and eights. It's never sevens and eights if it's performing, right? Right, so, right. Um, it's become very difficult for them to rationalize exchanging bricks for bricks in the same location. So sure. uh, through the Opportunity Zone, we have a lot of our clients trading bricks for human capital. We're making oh. investments in businesses. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, this, the coronavirus and the decentralization of everything has... I think uh, given a, a bit of a spark and fire to the entrepreneurial spirit yeah. uh, here in the country. So we're doing some of that and the rest of it is we're just, we're moving that stuff out of state. And, you know, when you tie that back to what was part two of my question for you before yeah. I went off on a tangent here, <laughs> um, you know, they're proposing, it's actually, from what I understand, it's, it's in its current iteration would be the scrap, the 1031 exchange to, yeah. to a large extent. Yeah. Can you speak to what what impact you think that would have on the market where where you're working now? Oh yeah, I think the reason why people do 1031 obviously is to move their money to a more profitable asset, but they've already made their money in property A or properties A, B, C. Um, if they scrap the 1031 and go back to taxing the profit, I think a lot of people would not be compelled to sell, which would tighten inventory in that market, right? With those absentee owner um, type profile. Um, I think the taxation rate is so high uh, based on the profit that that would really kill the desire to sell their homes, their investment property homes, and they would probably just keep them. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it, yeah. At a time when uh, inventory, we look, we have a housing shortage in New York City. I'm sure you experienced. Oh yeah, for sure. In the city and uh, you know, these down zonings and these legislative changes that 
potentially can really have a dramatic impact on yes. inventory is the it just results in prices further going through the roof yes. um, on, on certain asset classes and in the other asset classes they're just not going to move their money they're not going to generate those taxes I, right. I think it would have a devastating impact on the economy I think so too I think so too I think that 1031 really helps um, move people's money between states and between types of properties etc and I mean, if I think about it, I'm just one single agent here that's done eight 1031s this year. And this year is not even, I mean, this year is not even halfway over. Um, I can't imagine how many more, if I ever took a poll on that, how many more that's already taken place. Yeah. So that, that's a good amount of inventory. It, it, it sure is. Yeah. So, you know, we'll keep an eye on that as I'm sure you will as we move forward. Uh, just a couple of more questions. This has sure. been, by the way, I really appreciate it value you're delivering here for the audience. Um, first time home buyer versus a, a more seasoned buyer, someone who's been through one or two or three different transactions. Uh, how does your approach change on the buy side? Oh yeah, great question. So I think a lot of that, um, a lot of that uh, is personality based too, right? So it depends on what the personality of a first time home buyer first time home buyer A and second time home buyer, right? They, if they have very similar personalities and they need the handholding both times, it doesn't really, really change. But the first time home buyer, for sure, uh, talking them through the verbiage of just the basics, right? Like putting an offer in, contingency period, what does it mean to put an earnest money deposit down? All of that stuff those conversations have to be so meaty. Um, and the same conversation probably comes up a few times because for us, it's like, I, I say the word contingency probably 20 times in a day. So to me, it's just part of vocabulary. Whereas the average person probably never said that word, you know? So, um, and the thing right now is I would say with the way the market is, we're writing offers with no contingencies all day long which put, puts the buyer, a first-time home buyer, especially at huge risk if they don't understand that once their deposit is in, it's virtually gone if you decide to back out for any reason. So honing in on that topic is so crucial to me with a first-time home buyer. But a lot of times my second-time home buyers act like first-time home buyers because they haven't purchased a home in this kind of market before. Right. Yeah. And and even for me, this market, it's been 18 years and this is the first time I've ever experienced how crazy this market is. A. And there's a few people um, who are on their third round of buying, but they're just like shocked at this market. So they're like, wait, what does this mean? So I think right now um, I do treat all of them very similar. Now, um, my second and third time home buyers, um, they're usually move up. And so we would have done a sale of something when they're in that bucket then as a buyer. So then they become very versed in like how the market is because they just went through that whole profile, but the flip side. So they were the seller in that and now they're in a buyer. But the first time home buyer, I think handholding is mandatory. And I think it's, um, it, it's, it's a gift that a buyer should take happily because they're in it for the first time. They, they need the handholding, especially in this kind of market where it's, it's fairly risky. Um, and right now we're writing anywhere from like zero to 12 offers per buyer before they actually get accepted. So 
so teaching them from day one before writing an offer versus on the job training makes so much, it, it makes life so much easier and the journey so much easier. So um, first time home buyer education is huge, huge. And I think talking through the education versus sending them PDFs is huge. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, slowing it down, right. We, we're uh, building out an institute here, the Cassandra Properties Institute for yeah. our agents. And um, I'm in the business for 25 years and yeah. I'm around the business my whole life. So yeah. we had someone sit in with us when I was doing samples of the first videos and every few seconds it was, what does that mean? What does that yeah. mean? What does that mean? I think it's for us kind of, you know, vets, it's yep. so ingrained in our everyday vernacular that we forget, especially with the first time home buyer. It, it, you know, it really is important for us to slow it down yep. and make sure that we're really walking them through. Like you said, it, it is a risky market now. Yeah. And these non-contingent deals uh, are foreign to even some of the seasoned agents. Like you said, 18 years, you haven't seen a market this crazy. Yeah. And to expect the first time home buyer to be up to speed is, is unfair. So yeah, absolutely important. And that's, that's great advice. So, um, you know, inventory, 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 that that's yeah. the issue now. Any tips for the agents out there on where you're grabbing seller leads? How are you generating, you know, uh, more opportunities for listings? Oh, for sure. So um, never lose sight of your database. That's huge. Um, I would say over half of my sales so far this year have generated just through my database. And what I mean by that is somebody owns something, right? Somebody owns a condo in some city that has generated so much appreciation in the past couple of years. They're like, why would I just not sell it right now? This is the best time to sell. Um, half of my deals came that way. Um, if any agent out there that's listening has a farm, right? A geographical farm, don't lose sight of the geographical farm. It takes forever to build. It takes forever to pay yourself back. But when it does, it does. And consistency, kind of like what I was saying about the social media posting, uh, consistency of doing your farm is so crucial. I think in the beginning, even for me, when I first started farming, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm sending these postcards. Well, And I still send postcards, um, a little old school, but but when you're sending out these postcards, you want you want to be the person they think about when they're wondering what their house is worth, which could then trickle into years down the line. Like, hey, you helped me all these years based on a text or an email or a phone call of what my house is worth. I actually need to sell now. Um, and I've had calls like that happen like six years into my farm. Um so I think not losing the sight of servicing your farm, if you have a geographical farm, and if you don't set one up, for sure, um, consistency of that, consistency of tapping into your database, um, and then just being there for your database, especially right now when there's so much to talk about in the real estate world. Like there's, I mean, interest rates, like, I mean, historically low, right? Like crazy, crazy low. Um, the turnaround times of property, uh, potential 1031 going away. If you own an investment property, are you happy with what you've made? If yes, maybe it's time to move it, you know, those kind of things. Um, so just not losing sight of where your business comes from. And then of course, I think you touched upon this too. Um, online testimonials and reviews. I've had a number of Yelp and Zillow calls and those kind of things this year. 
but it's the pace of the market and you just want to be able to be there for them. Well, Kajal, this was a, a wonderful chat, really informative. Congratulations on amazing success. Thank uh, you. you know, best of luck moving forward, keeping it up. If anyone out there is interested in, uh, in that area or is interested in making a move, again, top 1%, you know, for the last 17 years. So she's got this on lock. Uh, mm -hmm. How do people reach out to you? Um, text is honestly the best way, <laughs> yeah. but if you, uh, yeah, really? uh, yeah, I, wow. I, yeah, that is the, that's, uh, that's my, uh, preferred method because I can see it right away, react to it right away. Um, but if you find me on social media, please, you know, follow me. I do all my updates on there. Um, Instagram at Kajal Shahani real estate.com on Facebook as well. It's just my name. Um, but, you know, if anybody wants to have a chat about the California market, send me a text, send me a message. Um, my website is just my first and last name dot com. So easy to find. Great. Thank you so much yeah. for the time. Um, everyone out there, as always, we appreciate it. Please like, follow, share, comment. And as always, stay safe.